After an embarrassing withdrawal from Russia's southern flank in Afghanistan, President Biden is asserting American power on Russia's western flank in Ukraine. In the meantime, the attention of the world is focused sort of on China as host of the Beijing Olympics, but the spotlight is not entirely flattering, especially if you care about individual liberty. And how about those Canadian truckers who just can't seem to resign themselves to mandates? We will discuss all this on and more on today's edition of Independent Outlook. Welcome, everybody. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try to give you an analysis of the issues of the day that doesn't fit into standard categories, but instead takes an independent look. And it's my pleasure to be joined today uh, by uh, my colleagues, uh, Williamson Evers, and today, uh, William Watkins. First, Bill Evers, uh, our uh, director of our Center on Educational Excellence here at the Independent Institute. Thank you very much for being with us, Bill Evers. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. And uh, William Watkins, Bill Watkins is with us too. Thanks for being with us, Bill. It's fun to have you. Good to pinch it from our friend David Thoreau today. Exactly. Yeah. So just as a little bit of a reminder for our friends who may not have seen you for a while, uh, Bill Watkins uh, joins us occasionally for Independent Outlook. Uh, he is the author of a number of books, including this one with us called Crossroads for Liberty, Recovering the Anti-Federalist Values of America's First Constitution. A great book. I recommend it. Uh, and uh, he has served as a prosecutor and defense lawyer and has practiced in several state and federal courts. Uh, he's written scholarly articles in law reviews. You've seen his popular articles in Forbes, USA Today, Denver Post, et cetera. So just a little brag on Bill Watkins Jr. Um, it's an honor to have you, Bill. And you're coming to us today from your place in? South Carolina. Yeah, so we are bi-coastal today, friends, <clears throat> and glad for it. So um, let's look at some of these issues. Um, I think we have some interesting insights to share. Um, first of all, uh, the picture in Eastern Europe or Western Russia or Western and Northern uh, Ukraine is that President Putin of Russia has assembled now over 150,000 Russian troops on three sides of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it seems that things are getting uh, worse and tighter President Biden of the United States, I think it was last week he sent 50 or excuse me, 5,000 troops uh, to southern Poland, which looked very much like a ratcheting up of the process. Um, what do you think about uh, the, the prospects here, uh, Bill Watkins? And what do you know about Ukraine that you can tell us? Well, I've taught in Ukraine on two short-term assignments, one at Zaporizhia National University and then uh, in Berdansk down on the Sea of Azov and have a lot of affection for the Ukrainian people. And I really don't blame them for desiring to be members of NATO, to hope that the West uh, will come to their aid. Uh, against Russia as they try to be more pro-Western. Uh, however, while I sympathize with them in that regard, I don't think it's necessarily in our best interests uh, to go down that path, as certainly Russia has uh, an area of interest in that part of the world, uh, long history between Ukraine and Russia. And while certainly I would like to see my friends maintain their independence and have Russia keep hands off, uh, it's another thing, as you mentioned, to escalate, to send troops um, and to that area of the world uh, to do what? 
we're going to send throw 5,000 troops at 150,000 Russians massed on the Ukrainian Surely border? Surely not. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, just as a layman looking on, obviously, the 5,000 U.S. troops could only really have a function of being something of a tripwire. In other words, you know, you mess with our few people, even though you're way overpowering us in troops, you know, that makes us, that obliges us to respond on a bigger level. It, it's almost like a guarantee of escalation to send a, a puny 5,000 troops to that part of the world right now. I, I don't quite know what the what the strategy is, but it does worry me. Well, frankly, we've been escalating this matter since the end of the Cold War by moving NATO uh, further eastward uh, up to Russia's borders. You know, when I was in, um, actually it was um, uh, Ukraine and Berdansk, uh, I met a counterpart of mine. I used to be in the U.S. Army back in the 1980s in the Cold War, and he had this gentleman the very same job I did, but for the Warsaw Pact. And uh, he expressed his concern that, you know, why is America continuing to push and push uh, toward Russia and our uh, former uh, Soviet countries? We thought at the time that uh, with the end of the Soviet Union, there'd be a de-escalation and we would go our own ways where it appears that America is just belligerent. They want to be right up to our borders. And I couldn't argue with him. I said, as a policy matter, I agree with you there. So, you know, that gives you a little insight what, say, an average Ukrainian, again, former Soviet military officer, uh, his views on the matter. And he's not necessarily pro-Russian, but he's got eyes and he can see uh, that the U.S. has taken a belligerent stance since the end of the Cold War, uh, determined to keep Russia as an enemy and treat it as such. Bill Evers, you were making a comment a moment ago. Well, I just think uh, there's sort of s several aspects of this. One is the U.S. has been treating the Ukraine as a de facto member of NATO. It's supplying it with all these uh, lethal weapons, and it's you know it's essentially including semi including Ukraine in its defense perimeter. And uh, it's, it's troubling. I, I also think there's another thing that disturbs me constitutionally, and that is Congress is supposed to declare war. And if you keep putting American troops in the way of military dangerous situations without some sort of authorization from Congress, you're pushing yourself into a warlike uh, area. I mean, what this is the danger of all alliances that alliances can suck you in particularly mm -hmm. weak countries that you're supporting somehow they you know actually putin raised a legitimate question uh with macron president of france he said well okay imagine ukraine is part of uh nato and then ukraine says well we're taking you back crimea what when if Ukraine were to do that, does that mean that we have a world war between Russia and the United States over Crimea? Over territory which has been historically Russian yeah. for a longer time well, than it was strictly Ukrainian. Yeah, whatever that means exactly. But the, the point is a world war is a very big deal <laughs> it's between thermonuclear powers. And these alliances, particularly 
militarily, economically, sometimes in the case of Ukraine, politically and uh, you know corruption problems countries. Uh, the, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are cleaner many, many, many times, certainly Estonia, but, you know, they're very weak, uh, and they don't really add power to NATO. They suck NATO into the closer mm -hmm. and closer to the Russian area, and, you know, like a, an attractive nuisance somehow for problems arising. The comments that Bill Watkins made a moment ago are kind of ringing in my ear. Just to go back, I think I heard you say that, you know, you when you served there in person, had Ukrainian colleagues and so forth, you came to have an understanding of why they wouldn't want their country to be under the thumb of Russia and Vladimir Putin, because the Ukrainians have a, a little bit looser, a little bit freer culture. Uh, and certainly Vladimir Putin's regime has demonstrated itself it, it to be uh, pretty uh, violent and you know willing to stoop to anything. He's poisoned his political enemies and so forth. So there's a sympathy which Americans naturally would feel for Ukrainians who would like not to be subject to that kind of force and control. And so maybe, could it be, this is a psychological theory in a way, could it be that the American support for incorporation of Ukraine in NATO, either de facto or de jure, could it be that the Americans have been pulled into that out of a kind of um, well-meaning sympathy for the freedoms of Ukrainians without recognizing that it may not be the place of the American military uh, complex to protect the Ukrainians from the bad consequences of their neighborhood? Why, like, why, am I onto something there or am I missing something? I think so, but I also think why can't the Ukraine and the great powers aspire to Ukraine being like Austria between, you know, sort of the early 1950s and the end what of the was, Cold, yeah. Cold War. Mm -hmm. the, so mm -hmm. it was a neutral country. The Western, the you know, United States and Britain and France and so forth withdrew from Austria. The Russians withdrew from Austria. They didn't, mm -hmm. A lot of places they never withdrew from uh, or aspired to be like Finland. I mean, Finland fought several wars against Russia. Uh, it lost them, but, you know, it was painful to the Russians. And uh, they let Finland not be under their political control. But they also said to the Finns, don't become you know, militarily at one with our enemies. Just stay you away from be that. neutral, yeah. Of course, to do what you just said, Bill, is basically to accede to Vladimir Putin's basic demand. Well, why, don't let them be part of NATO. I, you know, I, I mentioned in a previous uh, discussion of our independent outlook that uh, Ross Dothout, who's a columnist in the New York Times, not only their idea of a conservative, uh, but he said um, that how about 25 years of you know promising not to be, the, the, by the way, the Ukrainians can make this promise. It doesn't have to be NATO saying, oh, we reject you. The Ukrainians for prudential reasons could just say, well, we don't wanna be entangled in this right now. And uh, so we'll see how things develop in the future. But Graham, I think you made a good point about the rhetoric our politicians have spewed this rhetoric that we're uh, 
our job as Americans is to export peace, to export democracy and American ideals throughout the globe, to remake the globe and our image. Um, and I think this rhetoric is certainly goes to the heart of some Americans that they see Ukraine, as you mentioned, living in a bad neighborhood. It has a bad neighbor. Uh, I'll say. But that's not exactly our problem. It's not for us to deal with. But again, this is a legacy of the rhetoric. For example, George Bush with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. That It's very similar. Uh, you know, we have to stop aggression. Aggression cannot stand. Uh, it, you know, don't mention anything about oil, but uh, it's all about aggression and seeing that we're not having another mm -hmm. Munich uh, and no Neville Chamberlain um, waving his piece of paper. But, you know, Bill Watkins, someone could, could respond to you by saying, well, Bill, if you really cared about individual rights and individual liberty of any person anywhere in the world, then you'd support U.S. military uh, deployment to protect individual rights and individual liberty. So I guess you don't really care about individual rights and individual liberty because you don't want to put the American military machine to make it happen in Ukraine. How do you respond to that? Is I care first about American individual rights and American individual liberty and further expansion of the warfare state, uh, further foreign conflicts where we put American lives in jeopardy, have American soldiers killed. Uh, that does not further uh, American liberty or American interests there. I think yeah. you can I think you can be uh, as John Quincy Adams said and as President Monroe, Quincy Adams was president of the United States, but he was also secretary of state under James Monroe. And he said, why can't we be the well-wisher to the cause of liberty uh, throughout the world without being some sort of bellicose power uh, trying like Napoleon to bring uh, enlightenment and rational and Mm -hmm. liberal values to the world, the world can find its own way to that. And our charities and our volunteer efforts can assist that when appropriate. And trade. Trade absolutely will help mm -hmm. liberalize the world. So, Yeah, it's not necessarily the case, in other words, that if you love individual rights and individual liberties, you have to believe in exporting it at the tip of the muzzle of a gun. Right. Uh, with a bayonet is the usual phrase. Exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we thought about that a little bit. One last thought on this, coming back to Bill Watkins. Um, <clears throat> neutralization was mentioned, I guess, by Bill Evers a minute ago. Based upon your time in Ukraine and your colleagues there and so forth, do you think that sensible Ukrainians could live with and, and resign themselves reasonably to being neutralized, to become a neutral state like Finland? No, I think absolutely. With the Ukrainian nationalist element uh, that I met and you know, had an, enjoyed a lot of dinners with uh, essentially, you know, they'd like to be left alone. But in their scheme of how can we be left alone, the only way that they see that is possible is to have a strong, big friend, i.e. the United States or NATO, to persuade mm -hmm. the Soviet or Russia to leave them alone. So, yes, they, I think they would be very happy to be neutral, but without some muscle to secure that neutrality, uh, they don't think that's going to happen. One of the fascinating things uh, about the situation is that it seems to have driven 
uh, Vladimir Putin and President Xi of China closer together. Uh, and you wonder <clears throat> what the chemistry of that could ultimately be. Certainly Russia is no longer in the grip of the Communist Party the way it was. And Putin himself has sometimes criticized Marxist ideology uh, in some interesting ways. And yet the Chinese have in no way dissociated themselves from Marxism-Leninism. Um, how, I wonder, could there be a kind of rapprochement between these two powers? One, certainly I would call China totalitarian. Russia, oh, pretty hard authoritarian at least. Can they find common ground or are they going to end up there, there, one another. there are outsider powers, and historically, outsider powers sometimes uh, ally with each other. They're revisionist powers. They're mm -hmm. discontented in some way or another with the situation. I think, you know, we tend to exaggerate how expansionary these countries are supposedly going to be. I mean, it's not like China is taking over India. Okay, or something like right. that. And uh, whereas China under Mao might, you know, at least have been somewhat plausible, I, I would say they were in certain ways not going to be doing that either. But nonetheless, it was at least somewhat reasonable to imagine that. And again, it's not like, you know, Putin is trying to invade France or <laughs> something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, yeah, he's concerned with his border, uh, but so are all great powers, and even small powers are concerned with their neighbors. So I'm not excusing things that he may do. Uh, he's perfectly capable. We know he's capable of doing very ugly, evil things. Right. But so are some people who are praised in the West. I mean, I don't want to go into Winston Churchill and the Bengal famine during World War II or, you know, one thing or another. There's a lot of flawed people that, you know. History, I don't want to history. endorse moral equivalence no, kind of I'm not, across the board. I'm not morally equivalence here. I'm just saying Putin is bad and, you know, it's reasonable for the United States to be watching out for its interests. But it's not obvious that the borders of the Ukraine are our vital interests. Looking across to China, the Beijing Olympics are supposed to be showcasing, you know, the, the effectiveness and orderliness of uh, modern China. Uh, of course, the pandemic has gotten in the way. They would have loved, of course, I'm sure, to have the stadiums full of cheering people. Um, but certainly the world's attention has been turned uh, to the Beijing Olympics. And the question of the Uyghur, uh, minority in China has uh, been raised by many people. Uh, the uh, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, encouraged U.S. athletes not to <clears throat> bring up things because like that because they could suffer recrimination. Uh, it was kind of a strange statement from her. She was simultaneously uh, asking the athletes to be quiet and also criticizing the Chinese. Um, Pretty tough. What do you think of she actually said some tough things there. Yeah, she did. It was a it was certainly a not a, a univocal message on her part. It had some subtlety. I think you know. I think she was tr trying to be practical in some sense because the Chinese have said if you say things that upset us, we're going to subject you to the laws that we subject the Chinese people to. Right. And uh, we just had this incident where 
a Chinese tennis star, Peng Shui, uh, you know, top tennis player in the world, one of them, and she accused a, a top communist leader in the Communist Party of China of sexually assaulting her, raping her. And uh, she was, so to speak, disappeared. She would, left at our site. She just recently came on and did an interview with the European Journal, and they had a minder, a political minder there, <laughs> overlooking what she said. She sounded very scripted. Uh, and most commentators that were quoted in the press said, you know, this was propaganda. She may have been tortured uh, even, and that, you know, this is a dangerous country, China. And uh, I'm not, again, as with Russia, I'm not somehow eager to go to war with them, but I also uh, saying, you know, it's very unpleasant to be in, the, in this country as either a tourist or a native. What was that thing you were saying to me, Bill Evers, about um, zero tolerance? Oh, yes. One of the most interesting things in the last few weeks is a movie that the Chinese government approved. It's an, it's an officially approved movie called Zero Tolerance. And it's supposed to be heralding and praising and lauding the anti-corruption campaign of President Xi. The problem is it makes an amazingly eloquent case with chapter and verse and tons of examples that the whole Communist Party and the communist system in China is riddled with this corruption, with clientism, with nepotism, you know, the, the young red princelings uh, that, you know, the supposed lesson is meritocracy and trust the party, not personalities. But the whole, here, here's this whole history of all these top figures who were taking huge bribes and getting away with it for years. And then when they're supposedly punished, it's like a slap on the wrist. And so the public is reacting and saying in social media in China, this system doesn't work. The system is <clears throat> deeply corrupt in a, in a way that uh, it seems in, inherent in the way it works. And, and I think we, the three of us, would agree that when you have a lot of central planning, it's not going to work very well unless you evade the directives from the top and try and do things outside the system. And the way you grease the wheels of evading things is bribery and corruption and special treatment and special privileges. And then networks of people doing that arise. And then that becomes the system, it takes over the system. And so this movie proved that <laughs> for official So it sounds like it, back, it kind of backfired, Yeah, huh? it absolutely backfired and boomeranged on them. And it's it's kind of a fascinating, the, the London Financial Times had a fabulous article on this that I would recommend to anybody. It's behind a paywall, but you know, whatever. Well, here's a parallel uh, situation, um, makes me think of that. <clears throat> also in the New York Times, uh, last week, there was this res remarkable article that I want to draw to your attention. Um, the headline of it, uh, it was Living by the Code. In China, COVID-era controls may outlast the virus. Yeah. And keeping in mind, this is the this is the New York Times uh, saying this. It's extremely good reportage. Uh, 
gave as an example, here's this opening story. I'm not going to give you the whole article, but the whole opening story was uh, about uh, a, a, an attorney who uh, represents dissidents, uh, whose name is given here as, uh, yeah, Jia Yang. <clears throat> Uh, and he needed to go visit the mother of a dissident in Shanghai from his home city. Uh, and he, he has to carry, like everybody else in China, 1.6, 1.4 billion people, he had to carry his health code app, which has been vastly expanded since COVID. Uh, and his digital health code said he could go to Shanghai, but then uh, they told him not to go. And then while he was en route, suddenly his app turned from green to red flagging him as a COVID risk. So he couldn't go visit the mother of the dissident whom he was representing. Uh, and so he points out that the Chinese Communist Party has found the best model for controlling people. Yeah. And here's how the New York Times continues, just a little bit more, this is so interesting. The pandemic, this is New York Times voice here. The pandemic has given Xi Jinping, China's top leader, a powerful case for deepening the Communist Party's reach into the lives of 1.4 billion citizens, filling out his vision of the country as a model of secure order in contrast to what he calls the chaos of the West. In the two years since officials isolated the city of Wuhan in the first lockdown, the government has honed its powers to track and control people, corral people rather, backed by upgraded technology, armies of neighborhood workers, and broad public support. And according to the New York Times, there's a lot of worry both inside of China and out that those newly enhanced controls based upon the COVID epidemic will not be relinquished when the actual threat of the pandemic uh, recedes. And, and in fact, the threat is receding and the powers of control and tracking are not being rescinded. This is instructive. Yes, and uh, so Raymond March, who does work sometimes with the Independent Institute, had a column just recently uh, applying this ratchet effect uh, where regulations go into effect and they're ratcheted up and they never ratchet back. So of course, famously, Robert Higgs, who Publishes Crisis in Leviathan. Crisis in Leviathan, highly recommended. Illustrates how governments seize upon crises to add yeah. controls, but never give them up. I call them crisis opportunity predators myself. But anyway, yeah. Mm. Uh, so you know, this is obviously a thing that can happen in China and has happened in the past in China, and it's something that's happening in the Western countries as well. And we need to push back on it. And you can see the battles over vaccine mandates is not to say that you know I'm in my 70s and I've had vaccines and boosters and I'm you know I'm fine with hoping that that will help me have a mild case if I ever get COVID. But uh, you can see the pushbacks against mandatory vaccines and mandatory wearing of masks and mandatory wearing of masks in schools as part of an attempt to roll back this ratchet and trying to stop it from locking in forever. And, and, the, Can and, the, Can and the Canadians, of course, being the most yes, demonstrative example of we'll this. We'll go there in a minute, but Bill Watkins, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and don't forget, it's not just a ratchet effect with government regulations and laws. Uh, there's this whole new social credit system that yes. the institutions are pushing for complying uh, with vaccine mandates, wearing your mask uh, and other things where you essentially get points 
for being a good person in their eyes. And um, it, this advances you in the proper circles and such. So I think this whole social credit system that in is China, developed in China, yeah. In the United States. Well, it can be adapted and is being adapted privately in the United States, it seems. Yes. And with that, that's still, uh, it's going to outlive COVID to the extent COVID essentially becomes the flu and we live with it every year and you might get your flu shot. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the lessons learned uh, by really, again, the institutions, the universities, the media, uh, those. Um, uh, powerful organizations, big business, uh, that's going to carry forward, I'm afraid, with other things. What's remarkable about this article is that some of the other details, uh, so for example, uh, in uh, Hangzhou, uh, city in China, um, they have installed video cameras on streets to check whether residents are wearing masks. And one district actually monitored home power consumption to see, check whether residents were sticking to quarantine orders. Uh, another city installed sensors on the towns of residents quarantining at home in order to notify officials if they were opened. And it's the technology that remarkably uh, sophisticated technology that has been uh, disseminated to achieve this level of supervision so as to overcome COVID, so as to get to the Chinese government's goal of zero COVID. Um, uh, it, it's it's a, incredible. A futile and goal, realistically. They, probably they're futile. Doing, they're doing, you know, if you just count cases and don't care about liberty, they have tamped down the number of cases. Yeah, that's right. I do want and to mention the, before we leave China about the Bidens and Peter Schweitzer, but go ahead, Graham. Okay, hold that thought. But I was just going to point out that what, what really re I found remarkable about the article in, in the New York Times last week was two things. One, the vast acceptance of these controls and scrutinies in China, uh, because people say, well, it's, you know, the West is in chaos and we're going to be orderly and we won't have COVID. And so that uh, they quote some individuals who said that when you question compliance with these things, people will look at you like the, you almost I can't even understand what you're saying. Uh, it's so ridiculous to try and resist what's obviously in your own good. Uh, and then the second thing that struck me about the article was that the authors of the article in the New York Times very carefully avoided saying anything about the obvious implications and counterparts uh, in the rest of the world. Yeah. So here we are now looking at China. It's not going to relinquish this ever higher level of scrutiny, apparently. And then there are other countries like Denmark and Sweden and Spain who've decided this is the time that, that they're going to let it all go. Uh, and of course, the tendency of, of uh, <clears throat> epidemics, pandemics is for the virus to get milder and milder. So it, and, right. I mean, it's already so mild. That so hopefully that will be the so, trajectory. It's already, so, it's already really mild. It, it doesn't, it, in terms of national selection, it doesn't really have an incentive to get more mild. And the, for the Chinese and the North Koreans to be pushing for zero COVID, is crazy. I mean, yes, okay, protect your really elderly and something like that. But just to have zero COVID with a mild form of COVID is, it's very but, but bizarre. This is very in order to push for 0% COVID, you probably have to push for 100% controls. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So can I say something about Yeah. <laughs> so before we depart China, uh, there's a new book out by uh, Peter Schweitzer, who's done a number of excellent exposés over the years. 
And uh, so he's interested in the connections between Chinese businessmen who are wrapped up in Chinese intelligence agencies. So like the United States, the Chinese have, again, without saying there's moral equivalency, I'm just talking functionally here, there are businesses in China, just as there are businesses in the United States that are intertwined with the government, intertwined with the intelligence services. And the Bidens have received $31 million over the years from uh, business leaders who are mixed in, mixed up closely with the intelligence agencies. 31 million? Yeah, that's 31. I mean, 31 million. 31 million here, 31 million there. As <laughs> Everett Dirksen might have said pretty soon, and it adds up to real money. And, and these were intelligence companies which were doing what? Just say that again so I get it. So there are companies that are intertwined with the Chinese secret services. And the Bidens have received $31 million over the years from these business figures, these companies. And the companies, of course, are trying to advance their interests with the United States. I mean, Hunter Biden does, doesn't get millions of dollars for some product, you know, no, normal productive service. Uh, he has his service to somebody who is hiring him is his political connections, is his name. And uh, so they they want that. They want access to the United States and yeah. So, and the U.S. companies want their technology to proliferate in the 1.6 billion person Chinese yeah, market. I, I mean, I, a lot of these motives are understandable and everything, but the the thing is, you also have to watch in terms of natural national defense when you get foreign powers, particularly ones that are potential adversaries at some point in the future. Heaven help us. Uh, but you don't want to give them a free hand penetrating the United States or buying influence with prominent American politicians. Yeah, that's pretty worrisome. I'm uh, interested in learning more about that uh, offline, <laughs> offline. So let's talk a little bit more about COVID. I mean, we've been talking about COVID because COVID is the justification for the massive increase in the surveillance state in China and elsewhere. Um, I don't know, Bill Watkins, if you've heard about this, but I've been scratching my head over this uh, remarkable data dump from the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database uh, recently. Three doctors from the Department of Defense uh, leaked the contents of this huge database, uh, which was alarming uh, because it, it seemed to demonstrate that there was a massive increase in complication side effects and dangerous results from vaccines among the military once vaccines were mandated as a requirement for service members. Um, have you heard about this data dump, Bill Watkins, or is this new territory for you? This is a little bit new territory for me, but I've certainly seen and followed um, how you know there are new studies out talking about the lockdowns and such uh, that we were mentioning, um, that mortality rates really weren't uh, in Western countries um, markedly affected whether you had a strict lockdown or not, that lockdowns actually were more unhealthy for the population. Um, but heaven forbid you get a real headline in a major publication about that these days. That is tough. Yeah. And of course, this particular story, it's very confusing because the 
uh, people in the Defense Department who run the def Defense Medical Epidemiology Database, they quickly uh, said, well, actually, there was an error in the data from 2016 and backwards in time, and therefore it made it appear that the recent years showed a huge surge in problems amongst those who were vaccinated. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's unclear, if that's true, it's unclear why they let their database go for so long. Or on the other hand, uh, it makes you wonder, maybe there was a surge in consequences of vaccination among service members. Uh, it deserves to be looked into. Uh, it doesn't deserve to, uh, hysterical response, but these things need to be, I wanna see them more than brushed under the rug, don't you? No, I agree with you. I mean, I'm like Mr. Evers, you know, I've had my vaccines um, boosted just in hopes, as he said, that um, if you get a case of COVID, it'll be milder, uh, that you're not going to be in the hospital or such. Um, but you're taking a lot of this as a leap of faith. And um, yes, obviously, the media hasn't wanted any adverse uh, information published out there because a lot of you know good people, I might disagree with them, have chosen not to get the vaccine. They don't trust it. Uh, they and I, the way the parties have been conducting themselves, the government, especially in the media and the other organs uh, in line with the government, you can't blame these people for uh, lacking trust. Thanks. You know, this is not America in 1950, say, or in mid 50s, where if there was a similar pandemic, uh, that the people generally, if Ike. Got People on got the radio. polio. They got their polio vaccine. Right. Including I gets me. on the radio <laughs> and says, you need to do this. Uh, there was a level of trust there. Uh, all that capital has been blown. Um, I will, it really has. I will say that there's a number of databases like this that are sort of passive reporting things. They're sometimes self-reporting things. They're not necessarily scrutinize carefully with metrics to, to determine is this really the cause of whatever phenomenon and is the phenomenon actually real or is it a psychological thing that the person feels about their situation i mean I just remind you all of the thing called medical student syndrome so when you're a medical student and you're reading about all the horrible diseases <laughs> human body is open to, you start feeling mm. these things, okay? And if people who are slightly hypochondriac or something like that, just to be charitable, I don't probably shouldn't <laughs> be calling them that, but anyway, they're worried about their health and they start reading, oh, you might have heart problems and they have heartburn, they report, I had heart palpitations. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that's what, all what's going on here. I'm just saying, right, of you course. can't take these databases as, solid final thing no no just as and we also just as we also can't take the numbers of death from covid as right. final things because sometimes it's a famous case of the guy who's run over by a car but when they when they test him after he's dead or dying he has some covid you know antibodies in him or something so you you say he died you should say he died with covid not of covid so all these medical things, when they're in a preliminary state without intensive scrutiny, you have to be careful and pause for a bit. But as b both of you have acknowledged, and I would acknowledge, hey, look into this. 
when there is a data dump like this, <clears throat> in the past, maybe, to kind of follow your reasoning before, people would have said, well, let's, you know, let's withhold judgment. Probably it's fine. Probably there's just some little inadvertent mix up. But as Bill Watkins pointed out, the level of trust in our public officers has just dropped so so greatly. And of course, the question, Bill Watkins, is why could it be that suddenly at the turn of the 21st century, Americans just turned into suspicious meanies? Um, or was there a reason why the level of trust has dropped other than the bad character of Americans in general? Now, you look at the consequences of misinformation campaigns over the years uh, by government from uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, ah, for our there's a familiar one for our whole involvement in the Middle East where we destabilized regimes where uh, we essentially gave a good shot in the arm to ISIS uh, and such uh, misinformation and lies there um, then we you have other sectors for example just with our laws with uh, courts finding new rights that never existed in the constitution uh, that the text cannot bear that history cannot bear but we're told uh, for example with uh, same-sex marriage that uh, it's right there in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. I couldn't find it there. Right. Uh, and I, and people realize that they're just being lied to on these things, uh, on in law, in politics. Uh, there's no trust. And in health, in health uh, crisis management. And, you know, the thing is, what's troubling about it is that Public trust falls when public trust is abused or after public trust is abused. And it's abused by um, typically those at a certain level of authority or a power or expertise in society, which is why when I look up uh, at Canada right now and see the truckers in Ottawa, what's going on there in Ottawa uh, is I'm not sure that I totally understand that. I'm not sure I totally sympathize with the truckers who are blocking neighborhoods and so forth. And yet... And yet there's something almost iconic in these truck drivers who don't represent, shall we say, the upper echelons of the civil service and universities and so forth. They're in their big trucks and, and they're the ones they are as as I read yesterday. I can't give you the number but as vaccinated as the rest of the Canadian population, if not a little more. But what they're objecting to is the mandate <clears throat> requirements. It's, it really is a, a protest for a certain kind of freedom. And it's a protest by a certain sector of society that lacks, you know, the uh, elan and admiration of the media. So it's really kind of a class struggle as well as a policy struggle. And um, what do you make? What do you make of these truckers, Bill Evers? Well, it's very interesting that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is calling them <laughs> Nazis and louts and. You know, mm -hmm. it's the usual story of deplorables when you have working class and rebellion against the elites. I th I'm pretty sympathetic to them. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's reasonable for the Ottawa government to ask them to stop blowing the horns late at yeah, night. Yeah, good grief. Okay. I couldn't sleep if I lived around there. But the rest of it, I think, is a pretty legitimate protest. And uh, so, you know, lately the government has been saying it's illegal to idle your truck. Uh, and they've been saying you can't 
sell diesel in Ottawa so that people, you know, would freeze to death sitting in the trucks if they can't run their engines. So they and they've been confiscating diesel. I mean, it's it's really kind of amazing. And the language, I'm not not saying both sides aren't using some extravagant language, but responsible government officials who ought to be showing some self-restraint <laughs> are over the top in denouncing these people. And, uh, and, and there's every prospect that it's going to extend to other parts of Canada, some has already, and people are trying to do a trucking brigade to Washington, D.C. have had some problems uh, yes. getting it going because of big tech interference with it. One of the most telling stories is that go the, the trucking convoy, the Freedom Convoy in Canada raised $10 million through GoFundMe. And the GoFundMe people confiscated and said they were going to give it to their favorite charity. Now, they somewhat backed down and made yeah, it. Yeah, now they said they're going to automatically refund, refund right. because they believe that they need to make the judgment that this this cause does not deserve the public support, so they're not going to let GoFundMe be used to provide it. I, I mean, you know, they're a private company. They're but, a private fund, right? But, but like, you know, maybe some other mechanism can be successful. There are other mechanisms being used, mm -hmm. and they certainly don't really have a, a right to take this and give it to somebody else. That that mm -hmm. seems to me. They really don't. But you know what's what's weird about that? Looking at the truckers in Canada, is that the the point on which they are protesting is an abstract principle. Um, it's not well, it's that somewhat, it's somewhat practical too. I mean, they can't take trucks across the border yeah. in the United States. They can't drive. But trucks but across. most of them can because most of them are vaccinated. Yeah, that's true. They're actually yeah. they're trying to vindicate a principle that a, a minority of them. Are, are affected by yeah, affected yeah. by it, it's, but it's a principle of individual liberty, which is quite I think, remarkable. I think you're right, and they're and they're terming it and they're terming it in terms of. I mean, they're calling it a freedom convoy, and they're arguing in terms of liberty. Right. Yeah. What's sad in terms of GoFundMe and where we are in public discourse here in British North America is that do we now have to have separate? Uh, websites or uh, fundraising uh, software for red states, mm -hmm. for blue states? Mm -hmm. uh, is it, are we really going to censor ideas uh, in this manner? And again, it's, as you said, most of them are vaccinated. It's a point of individual liberty that they're raising. Um, you know, they're not burning down buildings. Right. Um, they're people not attacking not being, the police. They're not right. beating people on the streets. They're not burning down federal buildings in Portland, Oregon, just as an example that comes to mind of protest. Yeah. Right. A mostly peaceful protest. Because Britain, Britain hasn't retaken Portland, Oregon. <laughs> right. Not yet. So it is. It's just sad that we, we've reached this point to where um, we're going to have to have separate mechanisms for uh you know red state blue states to do you know common things on internet platforms right. or red people versus blue people within a given state i mean it's a terrible kind of segregation i mean i think that if an organization is truly non-governmental and private like apparently gofundme is that they should be have the perfect legal freedom to be absolutely ridiculously biased and shameful 
<laughs> they should have the freedom to be that way. But because it's shameful, they shouldn't operate that way. They should just say, you know, let's be for everybody regardless of their political ideology. So speaking of speaking of cancel culture and political bias and problems along these lines, uh, somebody known to several of us uh, recently got an appointment to a constitutional law center at Georgetown Law School and has run into a buzzsaw. And I guess, Bill, you know him, right? Yep, Ilya Shapiro. He's yes. spoken many times uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina, our local Federalist Society chapter. As a matter of fact, he's come 13 years in a row, and uh, he's just a fine gentleman, a good scholar from the Cato Institute, uh, Cato Supreme Court Journal. He's been the editor uh, for a good while now. And unfortunately, this good man um, who really, he's an advocate for a colorblind constitution. Uh, he hates to see the balkanization of America. Um, he is now a target of the left as they're trying uh, to see that he can't feed his family, that he loses his job. So, so he, he must have done something really awful. What was it? So he, he was evaluating the Supreme Court possible nominees and also Biden's rule that he was only going to consider black females. And he said, you know, this is too bad because there are other, other candidates and there's particularly a person of Indian subcontinent descent who's uh, quite a bit more to be esteemed and to be valued and would fill this position better. And yet this individual uh, is blocked by Biden's arbitrary racist category. So he said that that was a mistake. And as a result of that, he's losing his job. He's been suspended from his job. Yeah. Wow. yeah he's on administrative leave because of that. And, you know, some people say, well, his tweets, perhaps a bit inartfully stated, but just made the simple point that people, what are we doing uh, right. having racial quotas uh, right. for the Supreme Court. You know, truly, you know, I use the Balkans as an example. Did you know in the former Yugoslavia, uh, constitutional offices were allocated uh, among the different ethnic groups? Serb, mm -hmm. Croat, uh, each had, et cetera, had... Uh, Montenegrin, Slovenian, and so exactly had Macedonian got su such and such office for so long under their constitution. And do we really want to go that route in the, the United States? Same is true States? in Lebanon, by the way. That's another I, good I, point. Another exemplar of you know uh, hasn't social worked out comedy. Hasn't <laughs> right. worked out that well there. No, it doesn't just doesn't well, work well. Multi-ethnic societies are a challenge for anybody. And uh, but we, the American we solution to being multi-ethnic is to give every person equal rights. Right. A constitutional order that protects their rights and a liberal spirit of tolerance and uh, mutual respect. Uh, you don't have to love the other guy, but you have to recognize his or her rights and abide by them. So as a uh, Bill Watkins, as a lawyer, can you help analyze this for me just a little bit more deeply? We're talking now, I'm complaining about a private university, which is rescinding a job offer. Um, maybe I should keep my mouth shut since it's a private university. What, what are the principles at stake here? 
Well, first of all, I think we should look at what's the purpose of a university um, that prides itself on uh, teaching young people to think, uh, to evaluate arguments. You know, he's going to be at the law center um, to evaluate arguments, to look at the merits and demerits of arguments, to be able to understand that. So you can go out and you can craft uh, the best argument for clients. So you can actually reason when reading a statute or the constitution or regulation, think logically. Uh, that's uh, the purpose in law school. And again, a broadly in a university, a liberal education um, to think, to speak, to look at heterodox ideas, to be exposed to different things. Now that all goes into the purpose of their existence. So while, yes, it's a private university, what a shame that this is even an issue. Uh, and the fact is, yes, it can be a challenge to have a multi-ethnic society, but the real challenge is when you have essentially a grievance factory uh, in the federal bureaucracy, mm -hmm. in the administrative state, uh, and these powerful uh, organizations that are attached to it in the universities, the Black Lives Matter movement, that are making money off a story of victimization, uh, a story of oppression, when uh, we're frankly doing very well in this country. Uh, you see people trying to pour across our southern border uh, in hopes of bettering their lives, of mm -hmm. having a better life for their children, earning money. Um, yet this grievance factory has this narrative going and it's taken hold. And that's why we see uh, things like this happening to a very good man, Ilya Shapiro. So there was a fascinating uh, op-ed entitled Why Colleges Don't Care About Free Speech. And it was making the point that many universities, including Georgetown, have uh, statements of purpose, mission statements, uh, various pledges that they, uh, where they have grandiose language about a free exchange of academic ideas, not going to trample your on your freedom of speech. You have leeway to explore intellectually in our university and so forth. And the, the author of this article says, well, but the administrators don't really have an incentive to follow up on this uh, lovely language. They have, a, they have a, every incentive to bow to the special interests that have internal lobbies within the university, uh, whether among the faculty or among the students, and they can expand their, you know, their bailiwick, they can expand their turf by catering to these ethnic or other interest groups within the university. And what he says is, well, okay, we need checks and balances. We need people whose mission in life is to defend free speech and academic freedom within the university. And, you know, they, they have some counter bureaucracy to uh, push back. It seems like a crazy thing that, you know, to even be suggesting this, but he's certainly right about the incentive structure and he might be right about the solution. Uh, I was a college president for some years and I know uh, that when a college has students who receive Pell Grants or other federal funds or loans that the, the college or university has to then itself abide by federal principles such as uh, free speech and uh, non-discrimination and so forth. I wonder if that might be relevant in some of these cases. I bet it is, 
even if they're allegedly private universities. But that's a story for another day. Um, there was another interesting thing in the education front that I read about, Bill. I, I thought, uh, Bill uh, Evers, you might know that I think it was yesterday or the day before that the state Senate in Virginia, which has a Democratic Party majority, um, just passed uh, a law, a bill to become law, supported by the new Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, which would rescind the requirement of, of masking uh, in uh, Virginia schools. Um, pretty remarkable because a sizable chunk of Democrats voted with Republicans uh, to enact the law and the Republicans control the other, the assembly. And so uh, Governor Youngkin is going to sign this into law, uh, lifting the mandate. That I think I think I think the tide has turned on school masking. Yeah, it's I mean, amazing. David, David Landhart, who is kind of the uh, public policy voice of The New York Times, uh, had a column in the last few days and maybe it was today uh, in which he said, on balance, masks have the most modest imaginable positive effect in schools and they decrease students' empathy and ability to mm -hmm. master emotional life. And so they're detrimental to students, especially younger students. And, uh, you know, they, they interfere with <clears throat> learning reading also. <clears throat> and uh, he said, you know, hey, the balance is there. So you're seeing all these states either end it now or they're saying well in a month we're going to end it or something like that mm -hmm. and they always say okay if there's some huge surge we're going to we'll bring it back but yeah mm -hmm. but it looks as if on school masking uh and so so randy weingarten was the funniest of all she of course always hedges anything she gives with one hand she takes away with the other so she said well we can get rid of the mask but we have to have a much tighter tougher vaccine mandate so yeah, if 99% of the kids and the teachers are vaccinated, then maybe they can take the masks off. But she too is bowing rhetorically to the need to roll back mask mandates. I read that progressives in Virginia are of course uh, objecting to the action of the state Senate. Uh, and, and guess what their, their new line of argument is. Now suddenly uh, they are defenders of local control. Right. <laughs> local control, which is precisely what they didn't want to have before when the state was mandating that all the school districts require masks. Now that the state's going to say, you know, no longer is that the requirement. Now, suddenly they're taking refuge in the principle that they once opposed uh, local local control. I will say I will one. say segueing further into the educational field, there was a fascinating article that brought up uh, a, a 1994 uh, amendment to education code and federal government. And that says that schools, public schools that receive federal money, money have to show the curriculum and the teaching materials to the, to the parents. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about state laws and transparency and one state is just proposing to put, uh, video cameras in all the classrooms in the state and so forth. But there's laws on the books for a long time. Now, the districts, you know, don't even know about these laws. But uh, with a, a determination of a good lawyer, you could pry. By the way, in California, they have time periods before they adopt the textbooks where parents can go and look at them. It's just almost nobody does. And uh, so there's a lot of 
rights that parents have that they, they haven't realized and maybe haven't taken advantage of. But this particular law, I, this is my life to know about this stuff, wasn't really aware of. And uh, it's, it's a rather powerful thing in this time of controversy over curriculum. A couple more things I want to touch on before we say goodbye today. I mean, we could go on for a long time here, but um, we were talking earlier, uh, Bill Evers, you and I, about Black Lives Matter. Right. Of course, Black Lives Matter, um, on the one level, it's, it's a slogan that lots of people, you know, could understandably want to embrace. But on the other hand, it's actually a specific organization with a leadership structure and so forth. Tell us what the latest news about leadership at Black Lives Matter is. Well, all charitable organizations, whenever they operate in the state, they have to file various forms and they have to say, you know, who's the president and who's the treasurer and who's the secretary and what kind of accounting procedures they follow and they have to file some accounting material about the money they got and what they've done with it. So <laughs> it turns out that the main Black Lives Matter organization everybody at the top has resigned and there's nobody supposedly running it but and, except for people that walked off and you know bought mansions in canada or bought mansions in the hills above los angeles one thing or another with uh, charitable monies but uh maybe they've sent spent some of it wisely i don't know but the point is there's this 60 million dollars that is completely unaccounted for right now. Nobody really knows where it is and who's responsible and accountable for what's going on with it. One other amusing thing is we often hear that, oh, there's no voting fraud going on in America. But uh, one of the city level, I believe Memphis, uh, yeah, uh, Memphis founder of Black Lives Matter was just indicted for and, and, and sentenced for uh, illegally voting. And so- What does that mean? She voted too often or- I don't remember the details of it, but it's just- it's yeah. just She was a uh, felon and therefore- ah, That's exactly uh, right. That is exactly law, right. Uh, her civil rights to vote were suspended and she right. tried uh, in registering and voting. And you know, she, she lied about her parole status and so forth. Oh, so that right. was falsified really, information. They, they don't like that. They don't like that. So that is exactly right. And that I, is I am trouble. recalling it and that is what it was. And so, I noticed she got, I think, six years. And I don't I don't think that's necessarily for the false statements on voting, but it might have been if she was on parole and violated the conditions of her parole or on probation. So um, she got some of that sentence exactly, back. Exactly, exactly. Oh, very well, so, I mean, I, the kind of summation of this, and it, it might change, but as of now, it looks like institutionally Black Lives Matter is imploding. It's having serious problems in its institutional embodiments, and we'll see what happens. Yes, well, I, I kind of wonder when I look at the organization and its ideological character that the movement uh, those who feel that they are called to advance what they call racial justice, that movement might actually be better off without that particular organization uh, calling the shots. 
So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, right. I want to come back to one thing, maybe as a final point before we uh, say goodbye. And that is we were talking earlier about the Supreme Court right. uh, and the nomination that President Biden is going to make. Uh, he promised Bill Watkins to make it what by the end of this month, end of February. And uh, can you tell us anything about the likely candidates? Well, yeah, he has essentially narrowed it down uh, to three black women. Um, one of them who has driven, uh, drawn a lot of fire recently from the left is a district judge here in my state of South Carolina that Jim Clyburn, very powerful Democrat in the House, uh, is supporting. And actually, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott have come out and said they would uh, vote for uh, Michelle Childs as the district judge. Most of our listeners know that Lindsey Graham is a Republican and Tim Scott is as well a Republican. No, that's correct. Um, so essentially, <laughs> Biden could go with Clyburn and make this nomination and really avoid a big fight. Uh, yeah, and it'd be over before it started. That's right. You know, Graham and Scott would bring along a large share, no, certainly not all the Republicans, but uh, it's a huge victory. And, you know, Biden touted how he likes to work across the aisle and such. Uh, and here hey, you go. Big chance. Uh, however, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the far left, because this judge at one time way back in her career worked for a large firm that you know, shockingly defended corporations and employment suits, uh, you know, they're questioning her bona fides as a good liberal and such, uh, and, you know, which is ridiculous. Uh, you, know, you know, Clyburn is not backing her for uh, no reason. And again, just my personal experience, I tell you, she's a good person. She tries to do the right thing. She is, you know, definitely. You know her personally. Yeah, she's a, so. I've tried cases in front of her. Um, she so she's a, a liberal. We're not we're not pretending otherwise, but she's a fair minded judge. Is that that's your main point? Here. No, you're absolutely right. I'm not saying that uh, she's going to be voting with Alito and Thomas on uh, major constitutional issues. Uh, that's not the case. But she's a good egg. She's a good person. She's uh, she's not qualified. Gonna... And you talk about diversity state schools this there's um yeah i mm. believe south florida and the university of south carolina are where her degrees are from no ivy here no harvard no yale so you want some real diversity there you go it would be an yeah, easy that's true it would mm. be an easy pick but uh we shall see again the far left is concerned that um you know she might not be um uh, radical enough for them and so far as she tries to do the right they may, thing. They may not think the other nominees that are the two, the one, the California Supreme Court judge and the other, the federal circuit judge, they may not right, think the they're DC radical circuit. enough either. Um, one of them was interested in property rights and banking and the system, post-Soviet system and you know, how strong property rights lead to good banking. Uh, also some interesting issues about presidential prerogative having to do with shielding your appointees. This is a complicated thing because it, you know, you want to have checks and balances and separation between the branches of government, but they have to interact and the president is not a king. So, you know, you have kind of an interesting thing that has to be struck with <clears throat> About executive legislative branch interactions, but one of them has ruled on cases 
pertaining to so, that. So when we get back together in two weeks, uh, what's your prediction, yeah. Bill Evers? Will the truckers still be on the streets in Ottawa? No. Okay. We'll come back to that and see what see how you're doing. So and 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 Bill Watkins, do you think that is it likelier in your mind or not that your uh, well at least colleague, if not acquaintance, friend uh, Michelle Childs will be the nominee for the Supreme Court? If likely Biden's, or not likely? If he's got any sense, which is questionable, she will be <laughs> and be easily confirmed. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty qualified prediction. Thank Paul. you both. Collins and Murkowski have voted for Cook recently when she was elevated ah, to the circuit okay. court. So that's another thing that may weigh on Biden's mind. Very interesting. Well, let's let's hope these South Carolinians hang together a little bit. We like having our South Carolinian today, William Watkins. Remember, you can be educated about the American Constitution through his book, Crossroads of Liberty. William Watkins Jr., thank you very much for being with us from South Carolina. Grateful Good to hang out presence. with you gentlemen today. It's fun. And Bill Evers, thank you as ever for thank giving you. us your wisdom. Thank you. And thanks everybody for joining us today on Independent Outlook. We invite you as always to go to our website here at the Independent Institute. It's just independent.org where you can get all sorts of good resources, including some very trenchant analysis of public policy issues uh, anytime you want. Independent.org. Come back in a couple of weeks and thank you all very much. Take care.